Hello and welcome to Outside World Occultism, the internet's premier shit-shooting shooting game podcast. <laughs> this is a bit of a patchwork episode because large sections of the satellite failed shuttering our plans for the week. So it's a mailbag episode. Yay! With me today are Ni. Hello! And Lavander. Also this tumbleweed I found. <laughs> Where do you find a tumbleweed in a jungle? Say hello to the friend of the show, Lavender's tumbleweed. <laughs> Hi, tumbleweed. Or tumblerweed, you could call it. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think there's any news or anything to launch into before we do this. Let's just get right into it. I think these are mostly from anonymous people. There's only one that isn't from anonymous. Yeah, it looks like it. Okay, so first question from Anonymous, who says, From a characterization and character development perspective, which characters benefited the most and which characters benefited the least from being in Hopeless Masquerade, Urban Legend in Limbo, and Antinomy of Common Flowers? Mm. The one that springs to mind most immediately for benefiting the most is definitely Dormy. Oh, yeah. Because she really seemed entirely irrelevant in Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom and basically just the average, oh, it's this person guarding this other world. Cool. She had the little tidbit in Alternative Facts, which was funny, but it wasn't much in terms of like characterization. Yeah, it was a portent of her silliness to come. And I think that... (laughs) Antonomy also really helped show her just completely inhuman way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that her stage in AOCF is like basically like a scribbled cartoon castle. Like it looks completely unreal compared to all of the other background art. It's because it's a dream. It it reminds me of like Pegasus from Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> With the whole tune <laughs> set up. Yeah, and her giant roboshi mech thing <laughs> that she turns into. Don't forget a roller coaster. Yeah, I do think that Dormy really benefited a lot. Yeah, she's kind of a serious and a silly person at the same time. A lot of fanworks have been having a field day with her. Yeah. Yeah, I do think that at the beginning when she first appeared in Lol K, it was pretty hard to pin her down as a character uh, with regards to fanworks. Yeah, I think that she just mostly got ignored in favor of Junheka. Yeah, yeah, except for like specifically Dorasagu. Mm. Yeah, she's very serious about her job, but her job is being silly. <laughs> Basically. Exactly. And probably for characters who benefited the least. I mean, Ichirin. Ichirin. I think I'd probably say either Ichirin or, like, I don't think Tenchi benefited that much from the game itself. She definitely benefited from the development she got around the game, but she, basically all we got from Antinomy is, oh, she's baby. Yeah, I mean, that that's a big one, arguably, but... <laughs> Yeah, I do think that Antinomy was kind of the start of Tenchi being sort of (laughs) redeemed as a character from, like, you know, long-forgotten limbo. I think it was definitely more Wild and Horned Hermit that did the bulk of the work there, though. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I would agree with you, but I would say that Antinomy is sort of what sparked that. Because she appeared there before in Wild and Horned Hermit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean... Whatever the case, I'd say it's pretty clear that Ichirin is the one with way less new characterization. Yeah, I think it's... The only interesting tidbit we get about Ichirin is basically that Unzan can't maintain his sense of self without her, which isn't even an Ichirin fact. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
she's more relevant as someone just playing the role of Difuto to be a Miko, basically. She's a really normal person and a really human-like yokai, too. So it's not like, oh, it's a normal person, but it's the yokai version of a normal person. No, it's just like, if you didn't look too hard, you would just see somebody that could probably be a college student. Yeah, she's like the modern-day mailing, kind of. Yeah. Oh, that's rough. <laughs> Especially considering that Mailing is in one of the official comics now. <laughs> and she's still not doing much new. Yeah, but just Mailing is more relevant right now than Ichirin is, which is just <laughs> oof. After being in three fighting games. Ichirin exists in the fighting games, I think, primarily to just be like the big punchy character. Yeah, she's definitely more there for being fun to play than for being developed. I think that Morasa would have been a good big punchy. But I think that... The idea of Ichirin having a stand is just way more fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that Minamitsu would have been like a good choice if she, like, she wouldn't be really a big punchy character. She'd have like a huge anchor that she would swing around, I think. Yeah, but it's the basically the same function as Unzan's punches. I really want to see Ichirin get more development because I am, regrettably, the Muran Temple stan of the <laughs> podcast. I do want to see her expanded upon a lot. I don't know. One of my favorite images of Ichirin is this art by Moe Harukawa where she's uh, sort of posing with Byakuren in front of Byakuren's bike and she's got like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that one. A, like training sword or something. She's doing like a motorcycle gangster pose. Yeah, she really is just like a visually and conceptually funny character but doesn't get much personality in the games she's like great yeah. concept absolutely failed the execution yeah or i mean it's a mediocre execution is the problem yeah it's not like she's especially poorly written because zoon doesn't really make extremely poorly written characters it's just that <laughs> she's completely unremarkable he's obviously not as interested in her as he is in some of the other characters and i think that she mostly exists just for gameplay purposes in the fighting games and probably kind of symmetry in terms of the cast since she goes back to hopeless masquerade which had the i guess already kind of half-baked like religious war concept they needed to have someone from the Muran cast but i agree that it would have been cooler to have I guess basically almost anyone else from the cast, at least if... Nazrin would have been killer. I would have loved to see show. Yeah, this topic brings up some memories, but <laughs> I mean, in a vacuum, yeah, I like I would have preferred show over Itrin. Show would be really interesting as like a spacey character. You know, the fighting game idea of spacey, not airheaded. Yeah, she's got a big stick and she's going to poke you with it. And she's got lots of lasers. Yeah, and that's not really a niche that's in the fighting games right now, I don't think. And it definitely wasn't in Hopeless Masquerade. Another character that I do think, not to, you know, run this question on longer, but I do think that it's worth talking about Shin Miyamaru a little bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She got a major overhaul, basically. Yeah, this was also sort of the beginning for her, like Tenchi, of just a complete sort of revitalization of her character. In fan works. Yeah, from double-dealing character where she is, like, assumed to be a sort of like naive innocent victim that got misled yeah the bonus comics where she is just being cute at the shrine definitely they're great but they definitely contributed to that mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and these games sort of have a more interesting arc for her, I guess, where she doesn't actually, like, I think still the bulk of her revitalization comes from Grimoire of Usami, where she has fully embraced her nature as, like, a little hellion. I do think that this is the beginning of it, and it also gave us the thing where she's just kind of permanently replaced by her dream self, and... Yeah, and didn't change anything. (laughs) Which is kind of the point, but it is kind of weird, even though the point is that it doesn't matter it's still kind of weird to the audience. It kind of is just unsettling. <laughs> yeah, it's like the idea of a teleporter that kills you and then reconstitutes a perfect copy of you on the other side of the yeah. teleporter. <laughs> That's exactly what the idea is, isn't it? That's pretty close, yeah. <laughs> Except that the stream of consciousness doesn't fade away or anything. It just gets sent to the dream world. That's where she lives now. Yeah. I'm struggling to think of a bigger loser than HRN and characterization. (laughs) Let me finish my sentence, please. No. Next question. (laughs) In terms of characterization in the fighting games, because, like, even Futo, like, she gets characterization despite being HRN exactly almost, except on Miko's side. Yeah, at least she has more, like, comic relief. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's that question wrapped up. Next question. Uh, This question comes from Anonymous, who says, Who or what do you think that the Hakurei Shine God is? Pretty much all we know about it is that it's a god of yokai extermination, who Byakuren says is angry because of a lack of faith. There's like two separate cop-out answers to that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, one answer is that it is a god of yokai extermination. (laughs) I think that is... Literally just, yeah, that. Although you could do some interesting things with a god of yokai extermination. Like, how does a god end up getting worshipped for that anyway? And the other cop-out answer is that it doesn't matter and I don't really think anything about it personally. There's some, like, cool ideas to play around with, but I don't really take any of the theories I've seen, like, seriously. And they're not, like, my headcanon or anything. It doesn't really have any, like, effect on modern Gensokyo. Yeah, I do think that's kind of the point. Like, the Shrine God is... Irrelevant, and they're mad about that. It's irrelevant, it's languishing in obscurity, it's, you know, pissed off about that, but it can't do anything because it has been engineered to be this way. Like, I think that probably the yokai sages who founded Gensakyo had some hand in making the Hakurei Shrine God sort of obscure and, like, forgotten. Yeah, if you just forget a god's name it's pretty easy for them to just be impossible to worship at all it's kind of stuck in like narrative limbo in the sense that it would be weird to establish like what it actually is and make a big deal out of it but it would also be weird to establishing that in the canon that currently exists would be tantamount to basically saying it's important now which (laughs) it isn't It would be weird to make a big deal out of it, but it would also be weird to mention it without making a big deal out of it. Like, not even Reimo really knows who the god is, but it still grants her, like, some level of ability. Because it wants her to do the yokai extermination thing that it's most proud of, presumably. Yeah, like, and I think this comes mostly in the form of, like, the yin-yang orbs, because the rest of Reimu's magic is just kind of, like, personal, almost more Taoist in nature, and it's, like, a lot of, like, personal stuff that she makes herself, or doesn't really have any sort of spiritual power granted by the Hakurei Shrine God, although I suppose probably her Ofuda 
Yeah. The fact that they don't even have the shrine god's name on them, but they still work for yokai extermination shows that whatever that god is, it really wants to exterminate some yokai. Yeah. <laughs> My personal headcanon for what the god is is just a divine spirit of a yokai exterminator who got venerated during their life. Yeah. I mean, that works. It's a pretty simple explanation, but it's just one that makes sense to me. Just some ancient Hakurei uh, yokai exterminator. That would make it, like, very literally the Hakurei shrine, which would be nice. Yeah, I think that wouldn't be unlikely for it to just be some person who ended up getting a shrine named after them and having their kids and or eventually people who ended up getting named in their name mm. working as shrine maidens there. It feels like for some reason this is one of those questions that I see all the time on the Western fandom, but I don't think I've ever seen a Japanese person or a Japanese fan work like say anything about the like Hagure god in one way or another. I think it's because there's just a lot of shrines that have forgotten yeah. gods to them. It's not a super unusual thing. Yeah, it might be more obvious to a Japanese like reader that they don't even think about the fact that the Hakurei god needs to have a name and a face or anything. Yeah, and that it's not super relevant that it doesn't. Yeah. Like, to someone in the West, it might look like, oh, there's a mystery there, maybe it's somebody that we know that's actually hiding their identity but if you just go to the countryside of japan you're likely to encounter a few shrines just on a normal couple of days tour that have partially forgotten gods and rituals to them actually in terms of like media i'm not sure when i last saw or read anything where the like specific god of a shinto shrine was actually relevant in any way yeah, except for, like, some of the super major gods. Yeah, but I mean, like, generally speaking, it's just not that relevant overall. Yeah, and I do think that, like, Reimu is, like, she is obviously pious enough, but I don't think she's a particularly spiritually motivated shrine maiden. She's um, pious in the sense that it's her job to be pious. It's like a thing that she doesn't really question or like, you know, feel any sort of need to investigate or, or like have an opinion about. It's just, you know, that's life for her. And this is a world where gods and magic and so on are, there's not anything to question there. Yeah. So to her, it's just a very matter of fact thing to accept the existence of the Hakurei Shrine God and, you know, do all of the proper, you know, prayers and rituals and offerings and so on. That's kind of an like interesting peril with real life where most modern shrine maidens are just like part-timers like working jobs cleaning up at shrines and stuff yeah mm -hmm. i don't think we're ever gonna get any kind of like you know face or name reveal yeah i think the point of the hakurei shrine god is that it is something that has been maybe not corrupted necessarily but obscured and manipulated by the yokai sages for their own purposes the Hakri Shrine's god not being named or having a face is kind of integral to its contrast to the Moria Shrine too, I think. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And the Moria Shrine has two gods who are just out there and walking around, three even. Mm. And one of them who is just a shrine maiden of the shrine. I think it's definitely an intentional contrast. By the way, do you actually think that Runasuke actually knows what the... A great god is, or is it just one of his stupid conspiracy theories? Oh, it's definitely one of his stupid theories. Yeah. He can't be over a hundred years old. 
Why not? Because he remembers the barrier going up, right? Because I don't think that half yokai don't live that long. <laughs> he's talked about open to interpretation, but he's talked, I think, on several occasions about like remembering the outside world and stuff like that. Has he? I personally think he's definitely like at least arguably older than the barrier, but I don't exactly have the quotes in front of me. I don't think he is older than the Hakari Shrine, though. Yeah, not the shrine. But the barrier would be around where the name of the god would become obscured if you're thinking that the sages did it. Mm. Yeah, I think it might be one of those things where he's like, you know, certain that he knows, but maybe yeah. is like not actually correct or has some kind of wrong information yeah. or whatever. And he might have a general idea of what it is, but he might not like know who it is personally or something. Yeah. And I also think that even if it's like theoretically possible for him to know, it's funnier if he doesn't. Yes, oh, definitely. Yeah, I do think it's funny that when he, you know, was thinking to himself about the Hakare God, he had this like moment where he was like, you know, I'm not going to tell Reimu <laughs> just to be a jerk. Like that's purely his motivation there is to just like be self-satisfied and showing her <laughs> up in a way that she isn't even aware of. Obviously, this is just Zun's offer avatar talking about how he's never going to tell the fans who it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely that is what's going on here. <laughs> Should we move on? Yeah. Yeah. Another question from Anon. Zun considered Phantasmagoria of Flower View a game for Toho's 10th anniversary. And that was released in 2005. So he considers that 1995 date the beginning of the series. Probably not the specific date, but whenever, you know, Highly Responsive to Prayers came out. He considers 1995 in general the first year yeah. the series existed. Yeah, which means that 2020 is the 25th anniversary of Toho. Considering that 2020 will presumably be an off year for the mainline Toho games, what do you think that we could see for the 25th anniversary of Toho. I don't expect anything in particular because we didn't have anything in particular for the 20th anniversary, you know? Yeah, we had like regular games. Zone didn't like make a deal out of... Even Phantasmagoria of Flower View isn't like... I think Phantasmagoria of Flower View being considered a game for the 10th anniversary is comes from the fact that... It was just the game that he released then. Yeah, and it was also that Zune wasn't really expecting things to progress that much further beyond early windows. I don't know the specific source on this. It's like specific enough that probably something that he said, but I wouldn't like read too deeply into it. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that Toho 9 came out during the 10th anniversary. Zune was putting those games out like at an incredible clip early on. Yeah, and he was working at a game place too. <laughs> Shut up! Game I'm stupid. <laughs> A game yeah, place. Taito, was it? Yeah, it was Taito. Yeah. And now Taito is making their own Toho fan games. How the tables have turned. Oh, how the turntables. It is kind of. I'm not expecting anything specific, but like last fall we had the mood that things were suddenly kicking up with new manga and new game, really new games announced and all that. But I think that hype has kind of. Like, if not died down, then definitely... It's settled. It's settled for a while, especially since the all the releases are so far from each other. Yeah. The manga have been running for a while now, and we don't really have a clear release on the... Or any new information since the last demo on the, like, new game either. 
Yeah, I think definitely like last autumn was just that's when the anniversary celebrations could have been considered to start, but that's the twenty fourth year and that's not anything year. So I think I think Zun just like does stuff and does not do like a big hub. Yeah, I don't think he cares about what year it is. Yeah. I mean if I were <laughs> expecting something from Zun this year, I say this basically every episode, but I'm still waiting on a data book. I would love a data book. I mean it's possible that it would come out on pretty short notice without demos or anything. But Yeah. I think it's a little bit too late to like sneak in that kind of thing by the end of the year. I mean I don't know. Well I mean it is only February. So it's certainly possible that something could come out by November because Eternal Shrine Maiden came out in November, right? Uh, like comic head or something yeah but i don't really think it's like that there's going to be anything like specifically for the anniversary i also don't think there's going to be any surprise releases besides possibly you know either data book or a... i don't really have any precedent for how much like preview hype or anything there's been for data books or albums in the past there isn't usually hype for the albums i know that grimoire wasami had some hype before oh yeah it, came out. it did i know that perfect memento had a lot of hype okay but anyway that i doubt it there's gonna be anything special for it we'll definitely know by the summer i think even if there is anything that happens this year i don't think it's going to be for the anniversary or anything it's easy to put a stamp on it or something but where's the line of it being specifically yeah. Uh, speaking of which, I have another question that sort of deals with ambiguous lines, which is, what would Windows-era Toho be like if the jump from the PC-98 era to the Windows era had been a simple continuation instead of essentially a soft reboot? It wasn't a soft reboot. Yeah, I would argue that it wasn't really a soft reboot. I think that's only like a retrospective take on it. Like like at the time, Zun was just moving from PC-98 to Windows because it was, you know, it's Windows. It's the thing that everyone uses yeah. across the entire world now. It's just the Windows games are the games that he's made under the moniker Team Shanghai Alice. Shanghai Alice, I'm stupid sometimes. I mean, that's the way he put it, like personally. Just, I've made X games and and a while ago I started making them under this name. And that was the only line that he like drew between the new and old games. Yeah. I think that might actually be what he meant like way back in the day when he said stuff like Toho isn't a series. There was no need for a soft reboot because he didn't really think of them as like solidly connected in the first place. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, there was like clearly a split in the sense that none of the PC-98 characters have reappeared while the EOSD ones have and all that, but... Besides a couple, and even Yuka and Alice haven't appeared since like 10 years ago. Yeah. I think that if there were any, like, I doubt there'd be any, like, tonal difference. The only difference would be the old characters appearing, maybe. Yeah, and that Zune would have had to put a lot of extra work into making the series not quite tonally dissonant. <laughs> because imagine having to deal with characters that you made when you were 19 at age 42. <laughs> oh, God. I think certainly the tone would be a lot different and there wouldn't be as much, you know, dramatic manga and stuff like that. I think it would be a lot more frivolous and silly. I don't necessarily think that would be the case, but I think that the transition from frivolity to drama would have been a lot shakier. Like, it wouldn't have been as smooth as Imperishable Night to Mountain of Faith. Yeah, I mean, yeah, considering how we talked about how EOSD is in a lot of ways basically a PC9 game 
Yeah. It basically would have just meant the like baggage of EOSD, except like five more games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't think there would be like even if, in the case of there like you know not being some kind of like retrospectively looked at soft reboot, quote unquote. I think that um, you can only like you know use the same characters for so long without seeking to like develop them in some way or expand them and you know that's what really leads to the sort of dramatic writing and further character development that we got in like you know the currently existing toho manga Hmm. and i think that it would have just been like maybe the same thing but like it would have evolved slightly differently yeah also instead of having a meme about mima showing up it would be just people grumbling about her slowly fading into obscurity yeah, it would be people memeing about Sario having, like, two lines. Yeah. Also, I do think that maybe if the PC-98 Windows transition wasn't such a hard line just because of, you know, the fact that it was a transition from one system to another, I think that maybe Embodiment of Scarlet Devil would not have had such a prominent <laughs> position. Yeah. Is this the good timeline? Yeah, in both Western and Japanese fandom, really. And so maybe this is the good timeline, actually, where PC-98 continues <laughs> forever. <laughs> I think we need to go back in time and destroy Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> we can destroy Microsoft right now if you believe in yourself. Yeah, but but it doesn't help, like, retroactively. It won't save us in this case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that would... The main difference would probably be that EOSD would be somewhat less prominent in fanworks, but probably not any less prominent than like the Imperishable Night Crew or Perfect Cherry Blossom or whatever. Yeah, I think they might be less prominent than the Imperishable Night Crew because they were definitely when Zoon started to think of Toho characters as he does nowadays, at least according to him. Hmm. I mean, yeah. they would probably have like some level of extra prominence as the still the first windows game in the sense of like being more accessible than the previous games but that that would be a lot more especially in the case of fandom it'd be a lot more like soft power kind of yeah it wouldn't be the same as this is the first toho game in the series exactly which is how a lot of people who are people think Yeah, I think that basically EOSD would be a little less prominent and not have its sort of fandom status of like the beginning of Toho. And I think that probably Toho would evolve a little bit slower or differently. Okay, next question. What fan works do you consider to be your personal favorites? Has a fan work ever influenced your headcanons? This one comes from Electric Weeb, so congratulations Electric Weeb for being the only person brave enough to face us not anonymously. I mean, their avatar has a bag on his head, so... Hey, it's close enough! (laughs) (laughs) And is it actually a bag on its head, or is it a piece of plywood with holes in it? It looks like a piece of plywood with holes in it. That's true. Impossible to tell. Anyway. (laughs) Point stands. This is a hard one. Okay, this is kind of maybe a cop-out answer, but it is a fan work, so a lot of Azuma Aya's fan works are really, really good. Yeah. I do think that she is, like, by far the most powerful poster in the Toho fandom right now. Yeah. I do really like the ongoing Komachi Dojin that she's doing. Yeah. 
which maybe has a somewhat higher status than most fanworks, but is still a fanwork. I like a lot of Nakatani Neo's Toho stuff. Not all of it, but... I like a lot of Nakatani Neo's, Tori Sumi's, and Hisona's. A lot of it, but not all of it, in general. I'm kind of naturally biased in favor of the ones that I've translated, which is about, what was it, 500 of them? <laughs> Like, Hisona is definitely one of the big ones, and I'm also, like, vaguely proud to have, like, a monopoly on them. <laughs> I'm the first and last person to translate a Hisona doujin, and uh, they've got some misses, because they tend to go pretty hard on the symbolism and what-if scenarios and stuff like that, but most of their stuff is great. I guess Sonose is a big obvious one, again, in the, like, split opinions category. I think that Zonos' stuff is neat, but it's definitely, like, very different from my vision of Gensokyo. I would agree with that. It's, like, fun to read and translate, basically. Yeah, definitely. Again, there's a big difference between, like, different books of his, and I especially think I like his newer style, if you can call it that. Yeah. As far as influencing my headcanons, I mean, we've all heard my <laughs> my game theories on the show, and I don't really think that those are influenced by any particular fan works, because I don't know if anyone's doing that kind of stuff. Most of my headcanons have ended up springing fully formed from my brain, abominable as they are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe one day I will finally finish the fix that I am writing and completely shatter the Toho fandom with big mood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I have trouble naming like specific headcanons that I would like take seriously. I guess I also have trouble with the idea of a headcanon in general since usually I just think of them as like funny what ifs. Most of my headcanons are usually just like more that's a cool interpretation of Ken, and I'm taking that yeah. now instead of whatever is currently happening. And most of them actually don't actually... That's a lot of actually. <laughs> <laughs> most of them don't actually change what has been said about canon. Like, it's what-ifs, sort of like the Gensokyo of humans is a what-if. Yeah. Obviously, I also have to... I don't really, can't even call it a shout out, but obviously I like the, like, new Strange Cow Dogens. Yeah. And if I had to, like, name a non-comic fan work, then it, again, they're kind of hit and miss in some senses, but, like, Joyfuls, those motion comics, like the Osano Remu series and the newer one about Kassen and Yoshika's backstory... They're kind of hit and miss in terms of, like, some of the exact themes and stuff, but overall they're nice to watch. They're super hit and miss to me. <laughs> Guess they never miss, huh? I definitely kind of think of the, like, Cousin and Yoshika one as a head canon in the sense that it's, like, a rough approximation of how I like to view their past, but I guess that would be it. Yeah, I think that I've just read too many fan works and... I mean, yeah. Look at too many fan works for me to have any single one cause a huge change to my interpretations of canon. I guess that I pick up little bits and pieces, but never like full head canon from the work. Yeah, mood. Yeah, there's nothing like with enough gravitational pull to really change my outlook on most things, but there are definitely like little bits and pieces here and there. Yeah, it's like a faces and faces thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For me, really, 
I do think that a lot of fan works don't really deal with the aspects of stuff that I would personally like to see explored. Maybe not seen or read a single Raymari thing ever that really deals with, like, Marisa's desire to... Like, her, like, very strong and obvious desire to have Reimu rely on her in some way. Hmm. And sort of what that says about her as a character. I feel like I've vaguely seen some, but there's too many and I don't even know if the ones that I've seen were any good. Yeah, it's definitely a thing that I don't see, like, as much as I would like to, basically. Most of the stuff that I remember is either really recent or particularly interesting in its novelty. Yeah, basically. Yeah, so I I think that's that for that question, maybe? Let's go with uh, another question from Anon. Hi, what do you think of the interpretation of Koishi Komeiji as neurodiverse? Which interpretation? <laughs> I think she's kind of by definition neurodiverse, but yeah, I, that's barely an interpretation. But that kind of sounds like it's like specifically talking about like using Koishi as a metaphor for some specific real life conditions. Yeah. I think that a lot of stuff like that tends to be pretty clumsy. Yeah, it's really hit or miss unless, like, the person who's writing the stuff has personal experience with it. And even then, it can be hard to hit the metaphor when you're talking about a character that's both fictional and not even human. Yeah, and I guess that because of the openness of the question is, it's one of those where, like, you're definitely correct in thinking of her as neurodiverse and probably like it's applicable to whatever you specifically like to see in her. Yeah. But it's like hard to address as a like general fan work thing or anything. If I was going to address it as like the general way that fan works treat the headcanon of her being neurodiverse, I would say that that's bad. The wording of neurodiverse like brings up a like one of the more nuanced takes at least Mm -hmm. but i don't know if that's just the way that it's natural to phrase things on tumblr rather than an actual indicator of a respectful interpretation i think that probably what anon is like not like what they're getting at is not like you know what do you think about like the interpretation of koishi kamiji is like some kind of crazy knife-wielding maniac yeah that's kind of what i mean they're definitely not asking, what do you think about Koishi Komeiji's heart-throbbing adventure? <laughs> yeah, so basically, hard to say much about that. Yeah. I don't even know that you could really call it like an interpretation, because she is neurodiverse. She is somebody who, you know, has a bit of a troubled history and character, and her own backstory is sort of about her. I think you could argue that even Satori is also neurodiverse. Hmm. Yeah, I think you could. Because it's just a completely different way of perceiving the world than even most yokai do. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how much of that is just inherent to the fact that she can read minds or anything like that. Like, you do kind of have to approach any sort of interpretation of these characters as neurodiverse, you know, from a perspective of, like, you know, they don't function or think like people do necessarily and so yeah you kind of have to be careful with what you signify as indications or symptoms of that neurodiversity so i do think that like if you do want to explore the issue i think you could have an interesting conversation about what the what being neurotypical is like for a yokai in the first place but that's exactly but yeah i think like 
in a vacuum, just like if you take it as a more nuanced and more sympathetic view on Koichi, then you're definitely like, you've got my thumbs up in a vacuum. Yeah, mine too. Two thumbs up. Yeah. If it's just, like I said, if it's just a contrast for the usual, like either low random or murderous Koichi or whatever. Yeah, I do think that there's definitely a lot of room for looking at Koichi and thinking about her mental state in the context of, you know, her original mental state and what is, like, you know, quote-unquote normal for yokai like her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's definitely a lot of really interesting things that you could do with that and sort of looking at it through, like, her, like, how that sort of reality affected her and how that drove her to off her third eye and so on. I wanted to do an episode on what being neurotypical is like for Yokai now. <laughs> that would be pretty fun. I, yeah, I think that'd be a great topic actually to add to the list. A lot of metaphors involving like non-human characters tend to inherently be at risk of falling flat. Like, Yeah, I think it's especially if you use them as a one-to-one for a type of real world whatever. It can be handled well, even though I have trouble thinking of like specific examples off the top of my head. But, you know, stuff like where the people standing in for a group that's experiencing racism are actually like orcs or foreign conquerors or something like that. Those obviously... Or the infamous within Toho example of... Like yokai being a racism metaphor. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't really work. Which is obviously not an actual metaphor. In that same sense, there's always a risk when you, like, of falling into the trap of looking like you're depicting yokai as a metaphor for, like, mental problems in general or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're just dancing around this question at this part, I think. We're dancing a jig around the idea. Yeah, I think it's definitely a valid thing, and but do your best. Yeah, I think it's probably the most canonical interpretation of hers, like, yeah. Koishi Komeji is neurodiverse, but... What does that mean for her compared to her sister, for example? Yeah, I wish you the best of luck in depicting that in any sort of comprehensible-to-humans way. Well, it sounds like we're going to be unraveling that at some point in the future, Mm -hmm. so let's look forward to that. Yay! This next question is not really a question, it's more of a comment, but I appreciated it. It comes from Nan. It says, When I was streaming Wily Beast and Weakest Creature, one of my friends said that Keiki looked like a girl he knows who's getting a fine arts degree, and I immediately thought of you guys. And there's some quotes from us, you know, she looks like a tired art teacher, she's got tremendous lesbian ceramics teacher vibes. <laughs> and, uh, well, yeah, I mean... She is! Yeah, that's what she is. <laughs> that's her. I mean, the reason other people are getting those vibes is because we're right. Yes. Yeah. We're right. <laughs> As we always are. <laughs> yeah. Terms and conditions may apply. Yeah, Kiki is an extremely good character and I love her a lot. And she might be one of my actually like new favorite characters now. Aww. Specifically because she looks like a lesbian art teacher. So I'm glad that there's, you know, actual people in real life just confirming that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's just the one question left, actually. If there's anything else that's been lost today, just you might want to try resending it. But if we ignore it again, then it's probably for a reason. We ignored yeah. <laughs> one question about a person this episode. We don't have a policy of answering questions about people. We don't. Yeah. We kind of spent like 10 minutes of an episode earlier just kind of putting a specific question on blast uh, <laughs> without actually, you know, saying what the question was. So 
That's you, just keep it in mind. <laughs> anyway, so last question comes from Anon. If or when there's a last mainline Toho game, what do you think it'll be? Who will the playable characters be? What will the plot be? Will the bosses be all returning characters or a new cast of characters, etc.? Hmm. I don't think there's going to be an official final Toho game. I think if there's a final Toho game, it'll just happen to be the Toho game that was last released. From the realistic, what's actually likely to happen point of view, that's never played. Like, Sun has A, no interest in, like, putting a stop to the series in a way that someone else couldn't pick up and continue. He's actually like made comments specifically to the contrary, how he wants to leave the whole series kind of open-ended so that other people can continue, if not like literally making Toho games, then at least like run with the canon and make their own additions to it. And also like otherwise, he's just like, if he ends up like ever like A, deciding not to make another game or B, not being able to make another game, then it's... He probably won't make the last one a big, like, finale. It, it'll just be the one that happens to be last. Yeah, I don't think that he wants to create a sense of closure like that for Gensokyo. Because that's inherently not what Toho is about, as you can see from every single manga's ending. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> This is a loving roast. <laughs> if it was in a situation where he knew that it was going to be the last that he was making, then it would be kind of sweet if it wasn't like a finale plot-wise, but it like he went out of his way to throw in like more characters and stuff like that anyway. Yeah, I don't think it should necessarily be like a greatest hits sort of uh, compilation. I think that Toho is Zun's great gift to us and the world and... It's something that he I don't think he's interested in, you know, sort of putting a capstone on, but rather allowing us to expand it as much as we possibly can. Yeah, I think he's just created a world for us. Yeah, and like if we do want to entertain the question and speculate about, you know, a like, you know, final Toho game or whatever. Like a theoretical final Toho game that maybe we would make or something. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't sound like it would suck. <laughs> <laughs> it would it probably would but we could give it our best shot toho game that's literally just a visual novel about the ceiling club talking about nothing i have a feeling that anyone <laughs> making like a fan game as the ending of toho is going to have it suck pretty bad shout out to conceal the conclusion <laughs> <laughs> i mean i didn't uh, say it it's a dark shout out <laughs> <laughs> Shout down. Um, <laughs> I haven't played that game, but I, I knew that's where you were going with that. Um, I have unfortunately seen it. Oh dear. I guess I should probably give it a try just to see what the um, don't reverse hype is about. <laughs> I'm also just roasting on secondhand knowledge, so it's really set in its time. That time being early Windows, so do take that into account with the fact that, like, it's not somebody in 2020 making a super edgy game about... Spoiler. But <laughs> a lot of people thought the series would end after Phantasmagoria Flowerview, even though they were very wrong. I had no idea about that, actually. If we were to, like, imagine there being a natural finale that's meant as a finale and kind of made as a finale, it's still 
kind of hard to make a more specific answer than just, I don't know, a lot of the playable returning. Yeah, I think basically, like, if there was, you know, in this Mind Palace Toho game that we're constructing here. <laughs> You're rotating it in your mind? Yes, visualizing it perfectly, like that Twitter meme. The only thing I would really want out of a game like that is to have the stage six theme be Eternal Shrine Maiden. Yes. <laughs> That would destroy me. Like I think I want the stage one theme to be theme of Eastern Story and the stage six theme to be Eternal Shrine Maiden. Oh my god, that would destroy. See, that would destroy me. Like I'm a huge sucker for bookends. Yeah, the bookended musical themes and that song specifically. Yeah, it worked so well in highly responsive to prayers and extending that all the way to Toho three hundred and twenty six. I feel like I've actually probably used that exact number before. Jesus. <laughs> Toho 326. We're talking from the future, so you know we know. <laughs> yeah, Zuna's gonna live for like 600 years and release a game every other year. On that note, I think that's kind of a thing that a lot of the things that would make for um, like our most satisfying like Toho finale are not really finale-like in a general sense. Like the most yeah. fitting send-off for a Toho game would be something like relatively low-key that makes these like preferably not like ham-fisted like shout-outs and long-running references to important themes in the series and stuff yeah. like that. It's so hard to make a final Toho game because I feel like basically like a, you know, a, what a lot of people imagine as a final Toho game would have to involve like some kind of... Like apocalyptic threat or something? Like, I think it would have to involve basically like a complete like confrontation and conflict of like against the sort of established order in Gensokyo. Yeah. And that would naturally lead to Gensokyo like crumbling and being destroyed as that's just the beginning to like a future further story about, you know, what life would be like post Gensokyo's collapse. I think that people who think of, like, Gensokyo is destroyed as some sort of apocalyptic situation for the humans and yokai living within it don't have enough imagination. I mean, if they didn't give up for the Industrial Revolution, they aren't going to give up now. I guess in a sense that kind of allow have our cake and eat it too, in the sense that we could have, like, a big Gensokyo shattering incident without destroying everything and putting an end to everything like it could be like a and the adventure goes on kind of thing mm -hmm. yeah but like i think it would be like very uncharacteristic of Zun to make that huge of a change as like a finale piece like to just completely change everything about Gensokyo. yeah if he was going to do something that big i can feel that he would like make more games after that like, if he felt like changing Gensokyo's status quo, he wouldn't just leave it changed. He would do something different with it. Like, for example, sort of what happened with Violet Detector. Yeah, we've talked before about how, like, Gensokyo is basically the main character of the series. It is. Like, the audience is, like, at least attached to the setting as a whole as it is to the characters. And in that sense, it'd be kind of, I mean, assuming you were actually ending Gensokyo somehow, that would be kind of a, it'd definitely come off as a downer Yeah. to end the series like that. And just not really, either, like, in general in Sun's tone or in the sense of how he wants to leave things open-ended. Yeah, I think that Toho is 
definitely sort of a story that is impossible to kill. It's a never-ending story that can go on forever, with or without Zoran. You can't destroy fantasy, basically. I guess that's another reason that Eternal Shrine Man would be a good, like, ending. <laughs> that's true. Now I'm getting all misty-eyed. No, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I do think that Toho is, like, it's going to go on with or without Soon, and that has always been his goal. And that is not something that he's interested in, like, shutting down or putting any kind of final statement on. Yeah. I feel like we on this podcast have kind of, like, collectively chosen and fortified this as our hill to die on, but... If we need to, then th- then we will. <laughs> you know, we have talked a, quite a bit lately about the possibility of maybe, like, something happening to Toho or Zun in the future. Which is in the, like, hypothetical distant future. Yeah, it's like the 60s or something. <laughs> to me, it's something that is worth talking about and sort of speculating about, but I think that giving it too much importance is almost on the same level as, like, Toho is reclining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the panic about how Toho is dying every time, like, a new Toho game comes out or whatever, uh, when that couldn't be further from the truth, and Toho is going to honestly probably live forever. And it certainly will, like, in the ideal outcome. And if it doesn't, then we die with it. <laughs> so you can't come blame us afterwards. We're getting the last word either way. <laughs> That's our last word, the spell card. <laughs> Outside yes, world occultism um, sign, Toho will never die. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Actually, we don't need a sign on there. It can just be outside world occultism. Toho will never die. Perfect. I think that's maybe <laughs> the name of this episode, even though it's not really relevant. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly like dramatic. Yeah, and that's why I ended on this question, because I knew it would be. You have to do it like a spell card title, though. Like, Yeah, we can just make a different format for the, the title of this episode. Nothing's stopping us. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Anyway, I think that's it for questions. I think that's it for the show this week. Um, thank you for listening, everyone. And from all of us here at the Satellite Trefinity, uh goodbye and see you next thank time. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye.